Ben Days, executive producer of Aiden 5, the web series, and you're listening to Genre Tainment. Welcome to the first installment of Genre Tainment, and we are your hosts, Marks. And Julie, and we are here to give you news on our favorite TV shows, movies, web series, and everything in between. We also have interviews, like today's interview with Victor Brooke Miller, who's most famous for being the writer of the first Friday the 13th. But he has written way more than that, including some of my favorite soap operas. <laughs> yes, I'm admitting to actually watching some soap operas today. <laughs> he also gives writing workshops, so you can rest assured that we're going to be asking him to give us some tips on screenwriting. And don't forget about Cabin in the Woods. Yes. <laughs> we also find out what Victor really thinks about that horror film. No! <laughs> With it being the first episode, and that's really enjoying Victor's interview so much, we made this episode a little longer than the usual hour. We don't have an official theme song yet, so what you just heard was a snippet from the theme song used for our web series, Reality on Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. Before the interview, we have some news that are hot off of the virtual presses. First up... Where in the force is that live-action Star Wars series we keep hearing about? We heard not long ago that budget constraints would be causing a long delay of the premiere for this new series, but Lucasfilm's producer Rick McCallum told the website Den of Geeks there's an even bigger obstacle. It isn't very family-friendly TV. So? <laughs> now, I doubt we're talking about Game of Thrones gore or True Blood-style orgies, although that would be a bizarre turn Woo-hoo. in the franchise, but rather a grittier and darker tone. After all, it's about characters who are criminals and gangsters and takes place between Episode 3 and 4 when you know the whole Empire is trying to take over the galaxy. Not exactly the brightest times in the Star Wars universe, you know. And the proposed series, with the working title Star Wars Underworld, actually has 50 hours of scripts of what McCallum says are second draft scripts, and would probably take about a year of prep before shooting would start. But considering they estimate a budget of 5 to $6 million per episode, <laughs> plus the riskier, darker tone, which McCallum <laughs> likens to Deadwood in space, which is interesting, <laughs> it may be a very, very long time, or actually a very long, long time in a galaxy far, far away before we see this series on TV. And MTV is getting ratings worth howling over and joy for their new series, Teen Wolf. Now MTV wants to repeat the formula by bringing another film to the small screen, this time, it's Wes Craven's slasher series, Scream. Ugh. This is all pretty new news, so details are slim. But TV Line reports that MTV is looking for a writer for the pilot, and no word yet of Craven or if any of the other creators of the films will be involved. So what do you think? Brilliant idea, or is MTV getting carried away? Just please, please don't adapt any more board games to TV, okay? The movie <laughs> Battleship? sunk enough for a lifetime. (laughs) We here are big fans of Star's Gladiator series, Spartacus, so it comes to no surprise that we are disappointed and disheartened to hear that Star's is ending the series with the upcoming 10-episode third season called War of the Damned. Mm -hmm. No! This is a theme for me for today. Showrunner Stephen S.D. Knight told The Hollywood Reporter that the reasoning behind the decision... Uh, One thing he made clear that it was not due to ratings because the show was pulling in 6 million viewers a week. And he says, my original thought was that this show could go five to seven seasons, but we realized the actual history is very scattershot. We thought instead of repeating ourselves with one wave of Roman senators after another, going after Spartacus, getting defeated, going after Spartacus, getting defeated, why not really condense the story? It's like The Princess Bride. Cut out all the boring bits and just make the best, most rip-roaringest tale we can wrap up in the series. The series had faced some terrible challenges, which it overcame, 
including the untimely passing of their lead actor, Andy Whitfield. May he rest in peace. But it looks like the creators decided it was time to end on a high note. It is disappointing for us fans, but at least we will get a solid ending, which starts airing this January. And the Joss Whedon-directed film, The Avengers, is now officially the third highest-grossing movie of all time, on both the domestic and worldwide charts. Now, that beats the former third-place holder, The Dark Knight, as officially the highest-earning comic book-based movie in history. It should be interesting to see how The Amazing Spider-Man, which comes out on July 3rd, and The Dark Knight Rises, which is out on July 20th, will compare. Hmm. And speaking of breaking records, according to a blog post by Hulu CEO Jason Killar, Kyler, I don't know how Kyler. to pronounce that. <laughs> but the online video streaming service recently signed up its two millionth, millionth subscriber for its subscription service, Hulu Plus. Now, those high subscription numbers give an estimated 400% increase in monthly profits for the year. And that doesn't include their ad revenue. Now, what's Hulu going to do with all that money? Well, the CEO says he plans to spend over a half a billion dollars on original and ex- exclusive programming for the site in 2012. And they're actually premiering a number of original shows this very week, including Kevin Smith's new show, Spoilers, which he calls an anti-movie review show. Hmm. And about those Hulu numbers, does it mean less people are watching traditional TV? Well, possibly. A new report from Nielsen, the TV audience ratings and measurement folks, uh, show that the number of people who watch TV at least once per month declined from 90% of the population to 83% last year. And elsewhere on the web, well, we're on the topic of the web, the web series Red vs. Blue is returning for a 10th season uh-huh. with a special guest, uh, the star of Lord of the Rings, Elijah Wood. And don't forget, folks, True Blood, woohoo! Returns with Season 5 starting this Sunday, June 10th. I know we can't wait to see it. And movie and TV audiences, you know, they love zombies. And Amazon Studios has a zombie project in the works that would either be brilliant or not so Terrible. Good. Yes. <laughs> Deadline reports that Clive Barker, the filmmaker that brought his Hellraiser, has signed on to direct and rewrite the script for Zombies vs. Gladiators for uh, Amazon. In case you hadn't heard, the gigantic online retailer is getting into the movie business. Now, this project is one of 16 coming from Amazon Studios, which is using public submissions and feedback to help craft potential films. I know there's been a little buzz with screenwriters kind of worried about rights issues and stuff, but well, maybe that's something we can talk about in the future. Hmm. Uh, but, but what's it about? Well, it starts with a shaman who's about to die in the Coliseum who casts a spell that raises history's first wave of zombies, and it's up to a gladiator to stop the spread of the zombie horde and save Rome. So what do you say? Thumbs up, thumb up, or down? I say they need Animaeus from Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of zombies, ah, yes, everybody loves The Walking Dead so much that apparently it is becoming a reality. Well, sort of. Webb has been abuzz with cannibal cases and keywords associated with zombies and bath salt has been topping Google Trends for a week now. It all started last week in Miami when a naked homeless man was shot while eating another man's face. Actually, I think the man that got eaten was the homeless guy. Um, But since then, more cannibal-themed stories have been popping up. Uh, Many brand new ones and a few old ones that they've dusted off and are now getting new attention. Um, Recently, there was a man in New Jersey who cut his own stomach open and tried to throw his intestines at the police officers who entered his home. The man in Baltimore who ate the brain and heart of a missing person. The chef in Japan who fed his cooked genitals to the people in his restaurant. I'm glad I'm a vegetarian. The world (laughs) has gone zombie crazy. The CDC even had to give an official statement that zombies aren't real and we are not in the midst of a zombie apocalypse. Hmm. 
in all likelihood due to their media push, what was it, just last year, encouraging everyone to prepare for a zombie apocalypse. So, is the media just picking up on some obscure stories to benefit from this trend? Are the mentally ill being motivated to cross the line because of stories that they're seeing and somehow being influenced? Is there some new street drug out there that is a horrible side effect, like bath salts? Or could there be some strange zombie-like virus? I do know that there are illnesses that are referred to as zombie illnesses, um, call, also called sleeping sickness. And at one point in the early 1900s, a quarter million people died in one area of Africa due to this. There, are rumor, there have been rumors over the years of voodoo medicine inducing zombie-like states in an effort to uh, brainwash people. I don't know about the bath salts thing. I'm getting flashbacks of reefer madness trying to convince <laughs> trying to convince people that bath salts and a plant could possibly make people do these things. Mm. So, with these strange cases popping up in the news, the government is denying anything wrong. If this was a movie, I would be worried. I think we all would be. But this isn't a movie, right? Of course, that is what a character in a movie would say. Ah, oh, crap. <laughs> now, without further ado, let's get to our interview with a man that started a horror franchise that spawned, I believe, 12 movies, a television show, novels, comic books, and so much more. And We interviewed Victor Brooke Miller last week and asked him how he dreamed up the first movie and also got his opinions on writing, his work on soap operas, and, and so much more. So, here we go. You're going to camp blood, ain't you? You'll never come back again. It's got a death curse. Well, let's start off with uh, Friday the 13th. You know, you wrote the first one. And uh, uh, I guess just how did you originally come up with the whole concept? Um, that is some absolutely um, ma magical, uh, surreal moment in my life when basically I was starving, I was uh, trying to sell my blood, and um, I had a wife and two children, still do. Um, and um, we, Sean Cunningham and I had made uh, two family films together earlier, uh, several years earlier, and because all of America said we needed family entertainment and a good G-rated movie, and it was untrue because we made these nice little G-rated movies and they made no money at all. <laughs> and... Uh, so Sean called me up one day and said, uh, Halloween is making a lot of money. Let's rip it off. Um, <laughs> and that, that is the spiritual basis of my career. Um, I, I claim um, no, you know, no angel came down in my bed or devil came to my bed and said, uh, I have the answer for you. It was basically I went to go see uh, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter's uh, masterpiece. Uh, I enjoyed it. I am not a horror expert, so... I was certainly new to the field, other than the fact that I'd seen Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and uh, Dracula and uh, Psycho. But um, by by watching Halloween that one time, I learned a kind of a formula that uh, Hill and Carpenter had come up with, which I think is still uh, still workable, mm -hmm. provided you g give it a haircut, as we say in the business, um, and make it look different. But... Um, you know, I, I learned everything I learned from Halloween, and um, you know, I, I know everybody else wants to think that um, that this was uh, a divinely or or a satanic uh, gift that I had, but it was just uh, 
a, a piece of craft. Plus, I'd spent, what, let's see, that was 1980 or 79, and I had been freelancing for, what, nine, ten years, and uh, uh, starving, except for the fact that my wife was a legal secretary and earning money to, to support us in some way. But um, I'd, I'd picked up some pieces of craft, and, um, and the other thing is that uh, I was fortunate enough to be given um, a very strange family of origin, um, which allowed me to invent Mrs. Voorhees and her son Jason, um, and that's um, that's that's kind of kind of how it all happened. Do you remember the moment where you said, "Aha! This is going to be the killer"? You know, she's going to be um, the villain in this. I mean, that that you came up with that? Did it just pop in your head? Were you making a list and trying to decide who would be the best, you know, antagonist in this? Well, I, again, going with the format that Halloween used, um, you know, they had, um, if you're going to do a low-budget picture, you still need a name player. And um, I cannot remember the name of the actor who is who was the big-name actor in Halloween, um, who played the psychiatrist. Um, but anyway, he was he was the money, the money player, and so I was using that same thing. And I said, well, I can't just uh, go with a, with a guy, so I'll go with a woman, and who better... You know, and and the other point that I, I learned from Halloween is that um, the 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 killing has to be justified by some prior evil that happens way back when, um, because otherwise you just have um, a, a a mindless serial killer who, for no good reason, goes around uh, killing little campers, um, and it shouldn't be just sort of a moral uh, moral rearmament person saying if if you're going to uh, commit adultery, then you have to die. So I liked, I really liked, and this is the part that I didn't understand consciously. It came to me subconsciously, according to one of my psychologists. And uh, she she said, I can't believe you don't know why you uh, created Mrs. Voorhees the way you did. And um, this was after le- hearing me whine for years about my mother. Um, <laughs> but it turns out that Mrs. Voorhees was kind of the, uh, the magical version of my, my actual mother because um, one of my complaints about my mother was that she usually sided with people against me. And uh, what I liked about Mrs. Voorhees was that, you know, because uh, these these uh, crazy camp counselors had not been paying attention to her kid, um, she would go out and kill every camp counselor she could get her hands on. And I thought, boy, that's a neat mom. Uh, <laughs> I wish I wish I'd had that mom. And so I, I created it, but but it was not conscious at all. It just sort of, it all seemed to flow out. And it obviously, um, you know, I, I know that this will make a lot of um, English teachers wince, but um, horror films are still an art form of some sort. And uh, it still comes from the same place that uh, that Melville and, and Hemingway uh, wrote from, uh, though for slightly different reasons, perhaps. But, uh, you know, you, you can't, you can't help but put pieces of your own life and your own psyche in it. So um, my my hero really is Mrs. Voorhees, and uh, that's why I've, I've had relatively none, no interest or none in, in the sequels because um, they just sort of brought Jason back to life, which kind of was weird, um, and um, and have him as the killer. And I, you know, I'm not... They They sort of said, well, okay... The reason he kills people is that his mother was killed. Well, she killed people because he was killed. I mean, this is 
this is at least circular logic and um, uh, troubles me greatly, but it uh, doesn't trouble me when they pay me. <laughs> now, did you find that um, completing the script or seeing the film made was, since it was such a personal uh, story for you on some level, did you find that to be a very cathartic experience? Um, did it did it help you in any way, or I think I think it did, but uh, in ways that um, I'm I'm not totally aware of. I just know that. Um, uh, both Harry Manfredini, the guy who wrote the music for um, uh, for Friday the Thirteenth and for many of the sequels, uh, we've we've had a number of talks and and I've heard him talk in public on the thing. And he said that um, that piece of music that he wrote for Friday the Thirteenth that goes you know killer mom or you know kick 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 well he said that came from reading the screenplay and he said um, there was. Those, those sequences that I wrote where uh, Mrs. Voorhees uh, vocalizes for her dead child, kill her, mommy, kill her. Um, and and in that moment where he said he really under, um, that, that that was kind of that, uh, that seminal moment for him. So he did the kick, 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 kill, and he put it in the triplexer or whatever it was. And then uh, Betsy Palmer, when she talked about um, sort of finding finding her place inside the role of, of Mrs. Voorhees, she said she found it in the line that goes in that same sequence. Um, he wasn't a very good swimmer, you know. Um, and she she just said I, that crystallized everything for me. And and those, you know, where the where the mother actually vocalizes for her dead child, and where the mother says. Uh, he wasn't a very good swimmer, and it's it's there's so so much. I know it's twisted and it's demonic, but it's there's so much love in those little moments, uh, even though they're inside out and backwards. But then that's the story of my my upbringing, which was inside out and backwards. Um, so it all it all made sense and 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 was great fun. And the other parts were all of the the particular ways of killing people. Um, those all came from fears I had as a child. Uh, from ages oh four through twelve, inclusive. <laughs> Where did uh, the the title Friday the Thirteenth come from? Yeah. That came from from Sean. I <laughs> I am I am I am willing to um, to state unequivocally that if if I ever give you a title for something that you've written, don't use it because I. <laughs> I am, I'm terrible at titling things. Um, I will, you know, I will go to my grave saying, being embarrassed for the the working title that I came up with when I was uh, doing the first draft of the screenplay was "Long Night at Camp Blood," because I was I was totally convinced that this was just going to be a pot boiler like the other stuff we'd done, which was going to go to drive-in movies and then die very quickly. Um, so I just made a title that sounded like a horror movie. And um well, I don't know. when it's well, well then then it. Sean I mean if I were doing a DVD movie today I could probably do something called Long, Long Night at Camp Blood and sell 120 copies but <laughs> uh, that's not quite the same thing as 35 years later um, but Sean called up I was I guess I was halfway through the second draft and he said we're going to call it Friday the 13th and I said well it's a wonderful idea. I love the title, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the screenplay I've written. But uh, but I can certainly put something in there. And he said, go right ahead. So I put in some references to Friday the 13th. You know, the policeman says, boy, full moon, and it's Friday the 13th, too. Boy, rough night. 
Um, <laughs> and that was kind of it. And of course, it um, it's uh, it's made its own mythology now. I mean, there, um, I I it's I know it's it's a lack of hubris on my part, but I have the feeling that I now know what it feels like to be an author whose work gets um, gets rethought and and reimagined in in the sense of. Uh, he must have been thinking about this or he must have been thinking about that when, in fact, I was just trying to um, uh, feed my family. Now, do you think that they would have... Um, what do you think they would have done with the sequels? Would they have kept that name if you'd called it Long Night at Camp Blood? Do you... Oh, I can't... I, I Well, I don't think anybody would want, have wanted a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just from the um, title? Longer I just, Night. I just thought <laughs> the it, longest it was genius. Night. I had not in any way. Look, I was so pessimistic about this whole thing. I mean, look, I'd done two films with Sean, one about a little baseball team, one about a little soccer team. These are kids' movies, and um, they made absolutely zero dollars, or they barely covered their uh, their costs. And um, and then we got into the horror genre. I mean, I, over the years with Sean, I had... Um, I'd come up with all kinds of ideas, and we were going to make all kinds of movies. And so there are three or four screenplays somewhere along the line there that um, that I wrote that uh, we never sold. And then so I had no faith in this that this was going to go anywhere. So uh, and I had no idea that it was going to become a sequel. And I thought it was awf- awfully fortuitous that in that last shot, um, the uh, the lake uh, there's a sort of a little circle of uh, I don't know something falls in the lake and there's these circles of rings of water go out and I say oh look they're going to make a sequel <laughs> uh, and uh, I had nothing to do with the sequels because by that time I was too expensive and uh, so I went on about my 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 job. Now um, you're on record as not really being a, a fan of the sequels. What did right. you think of the Remake that came out. What was it? A year or two ago? Well, a couple years or so ago. I've gone on the record about the remake, which was not a remake. I think it was a reimagining uh, or something. If, uh, wasn't yeah. it a reimagining? No, I don't know it what it was. was. To to not to put too fine a point on it, it was a rip off of the fan base. Um, it uh, they said they kept telling in the publicity that it was a remake. Um, and yet when they came to, when I came to say, oh, it's a remake, well, then I'm contractually, um, they're contractually obliged to pay me a much larger fee for a remake than for a sequel. Mm. Um, so I called my union and I said, um, what's up with this? And they said, well, we're going to send you a copy of the script and you can read it. And if you feel it's a remake and they're using uh, a number of your, your original things and, and your original story, then it's a remake. So I read it and I said, "Oh my God, this is not a remake." I mean, they <laughs> use what they use like 22 seconds or four minutes or something of my stuff, and then they go blithely on in the future with Jason running around underground in a tunnel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's that's the only screenplay um, I have I have ever read of a sequel, and I only read it to see if it was a remake. And um, I said, "Well, if they're calling it a remake in public." Um, Shouldn't they pay me that way? And they said, no, they can call it, you know, they can call it Afghanistan if they want. Uh, but in, but as far as their contract with the Writers Guild, um, it's a sequel. So they lied to the uh, the public, and uh, and here they are. Wow. So I just, you know, that's that's taking venality to a new new level. Well, we're on the topic of names and titling oh, yeah. names. 
Uh, where did Jason Voorhees come from? Where did that originate? <laughs> God, I love this one. Um, <laughs> oh, this will be good. Well, I, I went to a school, a boarding school, and uh, there was a, a young lady with the name Voorhees, um, uh, and uh, so it just came to my mind. I always thought it was a very strange name. It was kind of, it had kind of, um, I don't know, spectral qualities to it. It doesn't sound like Miller Smith or uh, or Pyle, for God's sake. <laughs> and, uh, but but it has a kind of a I don't know spectral ghost like quality. So I thought, hey, that's a that's a great one. And um, originally it was going to be Joshua because um, my son's name is Joshua. But then um, I thought not for this particular thing. It's just too grisly. So Jason had always seemed um, I forget there was some bully I knew when I was like six years old that was named Jason, and I wanted to pay him back, so I killed him. <laughs> and uh, I and J- Jason just always seemed to me like I mean I know it was Jason and the Golden Fleece or whatever and the Argonauts or whatever but um, it always just seemed like um, a a name of somebody that I wasn't going to trust. So, Actually, but I'm I sure all the Jasons out there think that they can be trustworthy, but they don't know they can't. <laughs> well, it has it has a good rhythm to it though because yeah. it's Jason Voorhees, so it's got you know the S sound you know cutting yeah. through in both the first and the last name, which kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit better. And who who could be more kind or gentler than a Pamela? That's true. Oh, yeah. Pamela Voorhees, you'd think, oh goodness, we must have her take care of our children. Yes, <laughs> that sounds like a a good name for a daycare yeah. center, you know owner or worker. <laughs> right, yes. And the oh Pammy, come over here. The um the one thing nobody's ever asked me to do and I would love to do would be the prequel to Friday the uh-huh. Thirteenth. Um because um I definitely want to get into the relationship that um that Pamela had and obviously it would have to be p- played by somebody uh younger than all of us, but um uh you know the relationship she had with the Perhaps uh, Peter Brower, the the actor who plays the camp director, with his grandfather who started the camp, or something like that, and and to really get uh, get into some fun with that that whole deal. But uh, they, um, I, I have no idea what their plans are. I uh, want to see that. <laughs> I do too. I do. We haven't talked in God twenty years or more. So such is such is life in the fast lane. <laughs> I don't know if you've done any horror movies since then or not. Um, well, I did. I did one immediately afterwards um, when I went to Hollywood for my 19 seconds of uh, of fame. Um, uh, I suddenly I was in the the office of the head of uh, Columbia Pictures, and he said, um, "What do you got? What do you got? Any ideas?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd like to do a horror film in a hospital." And he said, "Get this kid's agent on the phone." <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I'm surrounded. There are three secretaries coming in and asking me what kind of uh, bottled water I wanted. And uh, there was like four assistants. And so they were on the phone on, on one corner of the room talking to my agent. Next thing I knew, I had a check for $150,000 to start a horror film from one phrase. Wow. Horror film in a hospital. Wow. And um, so, so I went home uh, to my wife who had, had not seen more than $10,000 ever from anything I'd ever done. And uh, so she said, oh, good. And um, so I started writing this movie. And a week later, I got a call from this guy, one of the under producers at uh, Columbia. And he said, uh, 
Mr. Price has um, has, discussed, has done done some research, meaning he's obviously had somebody look in a, a newspaper somewhere and said that uh, movies in hospitals don't make money. So, um, and I went, oh my God! I mean, all I had was one concept: horror film. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have anything else. So. I said, does this mean I have to give the money back? And he said, no, can you change the venue? And I said, sure, what do you want? And he said, how about a woman's college? And I said, fine. <laughs> and I have, um, on more than one occasion, I have said, that's at that moment, that's when I knew I had gone from author to prostitute. <laughs> which is uh, calling me by a much higher class name than I deserve. Well, I would but, say escort. Isn't that like higher uh, yeah, on the totem yeah, pole of the, the prostitutes? I mean, it's classier. Uh, yes, I don't think I was that classy at that moment, though. I was just so scared that I'd have to give up the only money I'd seen in 10 years. So. I'm sure your wife was as well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I said, no way. And um, so I completed the screenplay, and, and then it went into turnaround and never got made. And somewhere in the vaults of Columbia Pictures, there's a copy of this thing. Um and um, then I went on and and did uh, oh, I did the strangers watching um, for a, another draft for Sean who had already started the production of that then Mary Higgins Clark book, which wasn't really horror it was more terror with um, Kate Mulgrew and Rip Torn, and um, after that I did some stuff and then um, there was a recession much like the one now only not as bad, and uh, somebody said you want to write soap opera and I said why not. Um, I've never seen one. So I went, <laughs> I went and interviewed at uh, ABC and had a wonderful time um, with the head of a uh, ABC Daytime, uh, Jackie Smith, and uh, she hired me on as a consultant for about six months. I I was paid fifteen hundred dollars a week to watch One Life to Live, which I thought was really. I mean, you know, I was in Fat City now, boy. And, <laughs> So I, I watched One Life to Live for six months, and I would go in on Mondays and, and take part in the discussions about where the story should go and stuff like that. And then um, I, I really liked the communal uh, form of the craft. It was kind of fun sitting in a room with people saying, well, what if they do this? What if they do that? Well, what if they do this? Because my training had been in improvisational theater, and so it was like being in an improv, improv group that, yeah. with a typewriter. <laughs> uh, so it was great fun, and I uh, and so I I continued on, um, worked up to the next stage, and the next stage, and the next stage, and um, every time the ratings would go down or sideways or something, they would fire the writers. So uh, I went from One Life to Live to All My Children to Guiding Light to Another World, back to All My Children. Oh Lord, somewhere else, and then um, I did General Hospital for a while, and then <clears throat> pardon me, and then I ended up at All My children again for the for the last in 2005 and then I retired and so three Emmys and four Writers Guild Awards later um, I'm retired on a very nice Writers Guild pension Wow, now who was it and how did they make the leap from here's the guy who came up Friday the 13th let's get him on a soap Oh um, well, <laughs> a, a very fine idea question um, they'd it was actually actually uh Sean's lawyers um one of the, one of them represented the head writer of One Life to Live and who was looking for another assistant uh, to help out and he said hey maybe Victor can you know he can he can write anything so <laughs> he sent me in for the interview oh wow uh, and so that was you know it really is who you know um 
but of course if if who you know if it's who you know as long as you can deliver some kind of product yeah uh-huh. so i I did that for what twenty five years and had uh, great fun doing it and, and and horrible times but um it allowed me to put uh, two sons through various colleges and stuff, and we had a good time. Oh, great. Which one was your favorite of the soaps? Of the soaps? Oh, all my children, without a without yeah. a, without a doubt. Um, but back in the time when they had Phoebe Wallingford and Langley, yes. uh, the craziest people in the universe, and um, it was the most fun. And then, uh, unfortunately... Um, we entered into a, a period of heavy network uh, assistance. We called it intervention. They called it help. And so, and they lost. I think they lost their nerve. Um, the, because at its at its height, um, all my children was great because it went it went where the buses don't run. And um, I think the one of the reasons that soap opera has collapsed is that um, as the networks and the sponsors got more conservative. Um, the the audience's interest dropped. I mean, because it it became more soapy and less interesting. And it, I mean, it was at one point it was actually cool uh, to watch all my children and mm-hmm. and General Hospital when they had the Snow Princess or whatever Ice Princess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember uh, when I was at All My Children, we were the top um, soap opera at the Harvard Law School's cafeteria uh, or wherever they hung out and. Uh, so you know that's that's pretty good for uh, uh, you know actually having people with brains watching soaps, and and I don't blame them. It was great fun, and uh, blowing up uh, Jenny and uh, Jenny's jet ski was great fun. Yeah, that's the all my children was always my mother's favorite, and that was when I I didn't really watch soaps except when I was a young girl during summer break. You know, my mom could always come. She had worked very close to home, so she'd come home at lunch. And we would watch all my children, <laughs> and we would watch that together. And sometimes I would catch sometimes the other ABC soaps and during you know those breaks. And that was those were the only ones I watched. But my mother was um, pretty well devastated when they went off the air this last year. <laughs> and, and rightly so. I mean, those were those were some of the greatest relationships I've heard. So many stories like that. And it doesn't matter whether it was uh, Guiding Light or Another World or um, As the World Turns. Um, there are grandmothers and daughters and mothers and daughters and grandmothers and sons um, who, you know, the, otherwise the kids would have been latchkey kids. Mm-hmm. And they would come home and they would sit on the couch and uh, and have snacks with granny or mom or whoever it was and talk about these uh, crazy situations and say, well, what would you do and what would you do? I mean, uh, um, and there was, um, I don't mean to glorify soaps as a, as a moral center, but it at least offered the opportunity to say, well, um, is Tad uh, a moral person or is he amoral? And um, uh, you could you could enter into discussion instead of saying, um, instead of pontificating to the child, you could say, well, what do you think about what uh, Jenny just did? Or Mrs. Nelson, uh, when she wouldn't let Greg hang out with Jenny. Um, <laughs> You know what would you do? And and we and Agnes Nixon, God bless her, um, was responsible for a lot of storylines that otherwise, uh, you know, she did the first abortion one in a Viet mm-hmm. returning Viet vet. She also, we we did uh, while I was there the first um, AIDS story. Of course, the network and the sponsors chickened out, and so we had to give the AIDS to a poor woman uh, who was uh, married to an IV drug user rather than a gay male. 
mm-hmm. um, because they were afraid of losing audience share. But um, that's that's only to be expected with with the nature of the business. Then came O.J. Simpson, and that was the beginning of the end of soap opera because uh, half our audience went to go watch um, O.J. And then after the uh, after the trial, half of the audience did not re- of that half half didn't return. Really? Yeah. Huh. So that's if if you want to see where the the seminal moment of reality TV really burrowed in beneath the the skin, that's where it happened because everybody said um, certainly the the TV broadcasters saw. Um, the O.J. trial didn't cost a thing relative to Susan Lucci's salary, <laughs> and uh, you, know, you didn't you didn't have to pay Judge Ito. You just yeah. had to pay those talking heads out in front of the the uh, street saying, "Well, I don't know whether the jury's going to come on right." I don't know, and and they were just making this stuff up. Do you think and, that also solidified sort of the transition from the news networks going from journalism to basically focusing on entertainment? <laughs> Yeah, I mean we we now have soap opera twenty four hours a day, yeah, um, and uh, it's the same thing happened at nighttime. We now have episodic nighttime. It used to be serial. Uh, it wasn't serial before. I mean, it's um, it is this. Uh, I, Tina and I love my wife and I love uh, the Good Wife, and you have to have watched every episode to really get into it. Um, same thing with uh, with a lot of the uh, the, cable, the best cable shows. Justified, it always has a cliffhanger, just like we did, uh-huh. and the uh, the good stuff just keeps on uh, on going. In the old days, you had one complete episode, beginning, middle, and an end, and you could you could shuffle them any way you wanted to, and uh, like from Miami Vice, rarely had a cliffhanger, yeah. except except at the commercial break in the middle. So, um, as far as shows that you do watch now, you watch Justified, The Good Wife. Um. Oh, I some we have many guilty pleasures in the, <laughs> house, in the house of Victor and Tina. Um, one of the things I notice about a lot of these shows now is that, especially the the cable ones, is that uh, there's nobody to root for. Everybody is thoroughly despicable. Yes. Yeah. And this, yes. this I find you know Agnes Nixon taught me a great deal uh, when I was uh, new to soap opera and. She said, "Victor, who am I rooting for?" And um, I never forgot that. I mean, it's it's what I always look for in movies. I mean, I started. My mother dropped me off at the movie theater when I was like six years old, and just left me there. Um, and I guess she went off to get a wave in a set, as they used to say in the days. <laughs> so, um, and I just, you know, there was always a hero, and you always rooted for that person, and he would get or she would get in desperate straits, and at the end, it would be okay. And now I find everybody's repulsive. Like, I don't know who to root for in Game of Thrones. I rooted for Sean Bean, and they killed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we're we're divided on that. He watches it, and I I, I don't. So <laughs> I want I want the woman with the dragons to come back. She was kind of fun. As far as, you know, getting back to all the soap operas, I mean, you certainly made the rounds for a lot of years. Was there one that stands out as, you know, more satisfying to write or more fun or that you just enjoyed writing for more so than the others, or they pretty much... Well, any time, yes, there, there was one storyline. Megan McTavish was my favorite pal in in soap opera writing. Um, she was a very gifted head writer, still still is, but right now she's just raise, raising Bernese Mountain Dogs in Connecticut. She and I were just pals for years, and um, and we were at Guiding Light, and I came up with this storyline idea, and, and she was nifty. You know, if 
if she thought that an idea somebody else had, she would fight for it um, incredibly and had no no worries about authorship and all that kind of stuff. And so I, my wife had told me about this story in uh, that she'd read in the New York Times, where a uh, a prostitute in Berlin had twins, uh, clearly not identical because one was black and one was white, and um, so they were fraternal. Mm-hmm. And she had had uh, unprotected sex, obviously, with one black person and one white person in the same hour or two. And so I learned it was possible. Well, I I said to Megan, for 20 years or so, I have been writing these horrible scenes where uh, everybody, you know, somebody's pregnant, everybody goes to the, the hospital, and we play this scene on Friday with a cliffhanger. The The technician comes out of the lab and says, okay, Bob, it's yours. Or mm-hmm. he he says, oh, I have the result. And then on Monday, in the pickup, he says, it's yours um, to Bob. And I said, I wanted, I've written too many of those. I want to have one where the guy comes out on Friday and says, I have the result. And on Monday, he says, it's Bob's and Tom's. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, And Megan said, that's dynamite, let's do it. So we argued and argued and argued and got Procter & Gamble and uh, I guess it was CBS, I forgot who it was, um, to agree to go with it. And because what I thought would be great is if both fathers said, well, I don't want to be left out. And so we had kind of a threes company deal where both fathers would live with the mother, obviously not cohabiting in the sense of every three in a bed, but mm-hmm. um, they would all be living and they're trying to group uh, you know, group raise these kids, um, and that would just generate so many warm, rich, and ridiculous, and fun, and loving storylines. Um, I mean, it would show at least two guys who really wanted to be with their sons and not just take off, um, and all kinds of you know, um, who gets to use the kitchen? Do you have two kitchens? And um, I don't want to have an, one of your omelets again. You cook like shit or whatever. And, <laughs> So, um, so anyway, we did that, and about oh, three or four or five weeks later, we were fired. Um, oh, no. Oh, yeah. And uh, and then, no sooner had we been canned, and we're on to some other show. I think we were at One Life to Live, by the, or All My Children by that time. Um, they wrote backwards. They they had um, they wrote a storyline that said that the, uh, the the DNA technician had been co-opted by some malevolent spirit on the show uh, to do that stupid thing. And so it really was Bob's, not Bob's and Tom's. And so... Um, oh, no, I loved your idea. Oh, I know. and But that I think that that sense is what happened to, to daytime drama, that they lost any of the fun and punchy and, um, you know, you've got to stay ahead of the curve. You're, uh, you better get their attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't get it by saying uh, by having you know Tad's mother take you aside for a fifteen minute scene about uh, being loyal to your girlfriend. <laughs> Whether you're writing a screenplay uh, or a novel or um, a soap opera, the the only question, and I did this in a, a workshop I did in uh, in Evansville. I said, you know, the, you just keep ask, asking and answering the same question over and over again. What happens next? And then what happens? And then what happens? And then what happens? And and that's what writing is. Um, you can you can make it. You know, there are all kinds of more sophisticated parts to it, but uh, it really boils down to. And then what happens? And then what happens? 
So for for people who might be listening who are writers or want to become yeah. writers, um, you know, what would you suggest on someone trying to kind of try to break in this industry, you know? How how could they possibly break in? I have two answers to that. The uh, first one is, uh, I'll tell you the personal experience. Um, I wrote a, a horror movie this fall and winter with uh, two guys uh, via Skype, and um, it's really a good horror movie, and we can't find a buyer at this point. Um, and you'd think somebody who wrote Friday the 13th would be able to walk in and, and sell it. It's a, it's a tough <laughs> tough nut to, to break. Uh, so if anybody's out there with a couple of million dollars and um, wants to come up with the new, the next Friday the 13th, please give us a call. But um, And the other thing is um, there is uh, a terrific market um, on the internet of, of uh, you know people making movies for very 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 little money um, I've got some some friends um, down here named the Quiroz brothers who make a lot of direct to DVD uh, horror films I mean obviously everybody wants to go beyond that everybody wants to make the next step but it's also possible to learn all your craft uh, by doing low budget horror and a lot of it is really excellent stuff it suffers sometimes from um, the lighting is not as good because they can't ex- afford all of the kinds of um, stuff that you really need to to do a scene up well. But it, it, they're scary and they're fun and um, and you get a lot of experience. and And the Quiroz brothers were great. They let me be. Um, uh, um, I played a, a bit part in their latest one, whose name escapes me. But I got to play the postman who comes up to this new homeowner and and. Uh, Say, you mean the realtor didn't tell you that this is a haunted house? They're <laughs> <laughs> so the harbinger, you know. You, oh yeah, the bearer it, of the bad news. It's the Greek chorus, um, <laughs> and I got I got to be the Greek chorus, and it's it's great fun. And I, uh, oh, I, um, you know, th- th- there's just a lot of stuff, and and you should go to as many um, horror film festivals and local film festivals, and hang out at college campuses because um, whether you're an actor or a writer or whatnot. You start hooking up with people. I mean, people who want to make movies. There are there are directors out there who who want to shoot things. And um, if you've got a great idea, you know, uh, come up with that that log line, um, whatever it is, uh, and and work on it with people. I mean, that's the way Sean and I started. Um, he had done in in all respect. He had done with Wes Craven, Last House on the Left, before I ever met him. So he had the chops, but um, he'd used up all the money from that. And he and I were both uh, on our uppers, as they say in Great Britain. Uh, <laughs> meaning we had we had no money, and um, so uh, we were just uh, trying and trying and trying. And finally, you know, he found this guy um, with some money who would do the the two kids movies, and we did that. And then um, when he came up, it was much easier with the success success of ha- Halloween. It was much easier to um, to come up, uh, you know, to say, hey, look. This is this is the coming thing, um, because Halloween had already proven that there was big bucks in horror, so he got the money for that, and the rest is uh, cinematic history. <laughs> well, um, now you do writing workshops. That's how we first met you. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, so you have you know a good understanding of of the craft beyond just just your own scripts. Uh, from looking at the most the current films out there, you know what what's some common problems that you're seeing? Common problems I'm seeing is uh, uh, people working too hard to tell the audience stuff. 
I mean, um, the ex- I keep seeing exposition showing up in people's screenplays where they feel they have to tell the audience who's married to whom and what and why and whatnot. And they've got to, there, there are better ways to do that. Um, that's why I really push that people should uh, go to local universities and take whatever courses they can um, because you you cover all that kind of stuff about exposition and um, and and try to, how to build a scene uh, and also work with actors um, because. Um, there is nothing that will teach you more than when you go in with a screenplay, as I have done, and have an actor say, I did an off-Broadway play years ago. And the actor said, uh, I can't play this scene. I don't know how to play it. And I would explain in words, and he said, well, that's fine. Those are nice words, but I don't know what this character is really up to. Um, so that's another thing. Um, but for the most part, it's... Uh, people not using their ears well enough. Uh, you really got to listen to how real people talk um, and not get carried away. Uh, writers love to think that, um, that a, I don't know, you, you go through a screenplay and if you start to see four pages where everybody's got nine, li- uh, nine lines of dialogue each in each time they talk, something is really wrong. <laughs> because it's just they're going on and on and on and on and on. And, um, it, you know, when, when if, if Marx and Julie are having a fight, uh, I don't think either one lets the other one go on for nine lines of dialogue. Maybe uh, nine words. Nine <laughs> words on a good on a good evening. Yeah, after you've watched, after you've watched Doctor Phil, uh, but from there it just descends into hell, which is uh, which is what real people do, and that's that's much better because. But we love to. Um, I don't know, write the Gettysburg Address in the middle of somebody's thing, you know. But, now, do you um, think some of that might be, this is kind of something I had said to a, a writer um, and about a script, because, you know, I do some acting, and I said it's, they don't trust, they want everyone to just say with words everything because they don't trust the actor enough to be able to bring some depth and some character to the character. Well, because they don't understand acting. Um, I mean, it's it's really weird uh, that here we are engaged in this thing uh, where we're bringing the words to the actor, and uh, and not not understanding what the craft of acting is, and and that's why I keep saying in my workshops that you know acting happens between the lines. Um, just watch Glenn Close. Somebody says, uh, "Screw you, Glenn," and just watch her face. She doesn't have to say any words at all. Uh, I don't have. If I were lucky enough, lucky enough to ever write for somebody like her, um, you say "screw you, Glenn," and just say "Glenn reacts." Yeah. <laughs> you. She's not going to have to say anything. I mean, I know we all have met people where if you get that face, you do not want to live any longer. <laughs> uh, you know, like I was, I told um, the friend of ours, uh, Barbara, that she should quit smoking, and I got the face, and she never had to say another word to me again. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's so it is that thing that um, that you just you have to work with actors and you have to put up with them. Uh, and um, and because I remember a discussion I had with uh, the late Walter McGinn, who was in my play off Broadway, and um, he was a brilliant actor. And he said, look, Victor, um, in this scene, do I want her to sleep with me or don't I? And I said, well, you're ambivalent. And he said, fine, I can't play ambivalence on stage. You yeah. have to tell me, do I do I want to sleep with her or not? And I said, okay, you do. 
He's a guy. Yeah. But that, but that was after. But that was after 45 minutes of intelligent discussion that I had learned at Yale, um, <laughs> which was useless. And um, so uh, he he played it. And what was wonderful was he played it, and the natural reticence in the human being was there. So it still looked ambivalent. Um, mm-hmm. Because I don't, th- you know, it's very hard to play a pure uh, objective anyway. So um, it, you just have to go. You have to have your head thoroughly beaten upon uh, <laughs> well, by, now, an act- by an actor who explains what he or she does for a living. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a background in acting as well as writing. Um, do you think that that's something that most writers would benefit from? Just taking some courses or or just learning as much as they can about acting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, that's why I think, you know, I, I got a master's in theater at Tulane and um, I took a directing course, which made me, and th- that was actually more helpful than an acting course because uh, I knew I was a terrible actor. I mean, I'd already proven that in college. But um, in graduate school, as, as a director, I got to talk to um, uh, and work with some really good actors, one of whom I did a, a couple of scenes from a, of Mice and Men with Rick Hurst, who went on to be... I will grant you this may not be art either. He went on to be that um, the dumb sheriff or the dumb deputy in Dukes of Hazard. Oh. <laughs> and his son is a really good actor. He's on uh, Sons of Anarchy now. He's the tall one that wears the, the stocking cap. Um, and uh, it's a real acting family, Rick Hurst. Um, but at any rate, you know, in working with the actors and, and just sitting one-on-one with them and saying, okay, uh, how do we make... Uh, these lines, these uh, Steinbeck lines, come uh, come alive. So that does it. Um, also, my my email address, uh, free for the asking, is uh, vicmill one v i c m i l l number one at comcast dot net. And if you want, you know, send me an email. Tell me you've got a screenplay, and I will read it, and I'll give you notes, and uh, it won't cost you a penny. Um, it it may cost you some humility, but. Um, <laughs> And some but dignity, but other than oh well, no, I don't. I I try not to steal dignity, and I oh, okay, yeah. uh, my 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 thing is not to say this sucks, but uh, to say you know you might want to take another try at it. Where looking at it from the perspective of the person who's actually getting killed uh, might be a more interesting way to go at it. But you know, I'll offer suggestions, but not um, not say. Uh, personally, between you and me, I don't ever want you to touch a word processor again. <laughs> I will. I won't do that to anybody because because otherwise, um, you know, I'll be in heaven or hell wherever I get to go, um, and I'll be and that person will go on television and in every interview will say things like, "Well, the great Victor Miller told me I should never write again, and I've gotten four Oscars." <laughs> You're a wise man. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I've I learned from having been burned. When we were at the workshop, you said something about Cabin in the Woods. At the time, we ha- we hadn't seen it. We have now seen it. Ah. And and, and you know I'll be f- and I'll just let you know we did we did like it because we like John. Oh, Sweden I was going to save there. that for. Oh, no, I don't know. Maybe we didn't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, I want an honest reaction. I don't know what he thinks about it. Uh, we were split. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, okay. but what was what was your uh, reaction to it? My reaction to it was that it was a uh, a dishonest piece of. Uh, Superior condescending crap. No. <laughs> uh, while at the, while at the same time with some very scary elements and some wonderful scenic stuff. However, um, as soon as you tell me that uh, the horrors are being controlled by people in a control room, you've lost me. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> I, th- um, I think we'd been indoctrinated in the world of um, of, of Joss Whedon many years before, so I, I I think it's a different perspective. Well, who am who am I to tell <laughs> the, the person who's making all the money off Avengers that he can't uh, do that? But um, I I I can just say that my personal take on the film is that they were doing a very cutesy, thinly disguised um, satire of... See, the, the guys in the control room are writers of horror films. Mm-hmm. That's that's who they are metaphorically. Uh, and then they're the actors who are the characters in the screenplay. And then we know... And so the whole premise of this thing is that we have to scare the audience uh, every year. Um, be, otherwise, the real... Scary stuff will come up from below. Now, below means it, it all goes back to Bruno Bettelheim, the child psychiatrist, who uh, said that we need Grimm's fairy tales in order to deal with the real terrors in our lives as infants. And so that's that's what this is all a sort of a, kind of a ha-ha, aren't we brilliant? To me, that's what it, that's what it read like. Now, they may not have been at all. Yeah, You uh, know, actually, talking. I think what um, that... It might be a difference in in this, and I keep telling people I said because I don't want to ruin it either. I don't want to spoil yeah, right. people. And I say I really liked it, but I thought it was going to be a horror film, mm-hmm. but it's not really. But I don't know how to explain it. It's a comment on horror films using horror. Yeah, and yeah. and to me it was like, well, there's horror elements, but it's sort of a subplot. Yeah, but it's well, there. It's- but there's something else bigger going on, and it's one of the. I'm I'm not always good at explaining these things. <laughs> well, to give them to give them uh, credit and not uh, think of them as um, as totally without conscience, um, they are they could be thinking of this as a teachable moment, you know, where uh, we are using horror to teach you that look, these horror movies are designed to keep the real terrors of your own personality at bay. You go to a horror movie, you get the shit scared out of you, uh, and you won't have to deal with the fact that your your mother and father were absolutely vile and your uncle, uh, you know, molested you. That's that's the theory of horror. Mm-hmm. But I don't like to see the theory of horror. I like to see horror. Yeah, I, I I find it a little disturbing that the character identified with the most and pretty much was going, yeah, he's right. It was like the pothead through the whole yeah. thing. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, he was... I love that guy. And then his rant about the world should go, and we should just let it. And I'm like, you know, he makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little concerned about my own psyche at this point. <laughs> yes, well, I, I don't think uh, take nothing seriously is the answer to um, psych- psychiatric problems. So, I will talk to you guys again, I am sure. You are a delight. And... Um, Let's do this again, and at the very least, uh, come see me in Lexington um, if all is well in September. Oh, oh that'd Lexington? be great. I, I, I am allegedly invited. I plan on being there. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. We're so happy to have you on here and talk to you again. Well, it was my fun. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank talk to you, you again. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was a fun interview, and thanks to Victor for taking the time to chat with us. We love that guy. So um, also thank you to all of our listeners, and we're going to chat for just a few minutes before the show ends. So if you have anything that you would like to share or ask, please feel free to call in now. The number is area code 914-338-0314. 
And we don't have anyone in the queue at the moment. So I have more zombie talk. <laughs> we wanted to get to the interview. There were some also some more recent, not to glamorize, but just because it feels a little bit like, oh, holy hell, what's happening? Um, there have been some other recent zombie-like attacks. There was in mm-hmm. Missouri a man killed and ate parts of his roommate. And over in Sweden, so the U.S., it is not all us, um, <laughs> there was a man who cut off his wife li- wife's lips and ate them, um, apparently, I guess, in a jealous rage. That might be a first for a jealous rage. So, um, yeah, if, if we do want to go back in, and I'm feeling the need to look at the CDC's uh, comments for suggestions for how to prepare for the zombie attack, I can tell you for sure that... You do want to invest in a good machete. Don't think that you can buy a decent machete at a place you can also buy groceries for, say, you know, five bucks, and that it's actually going to cut anything. Not that I'm speaking from experience, but um, I've heard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little worried now. (laughs) You have to sleep sometime, babe. Uh Uh-oh. Help me. So whichever's more scary, marriage or zombies? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's uh, been a little crazy. If in uh oh, are you calling in? Is Ian? Yeah, I think Ian's calling. Someone's in. calling in. I bet it's Ian. I You'll know from the accent. Brains. <laughs> <laughs> well, so oh yeah, a couple of them have eaten some brains, haven't they? Some have some didn't get to the brains by the time they started getting to the flesh, but I think the guy in the Missouri actually started eating some brains. You about the uh, zombie hooker that cut off her, her John's John's hook so she could have a vibe. I I you know I honestly didn't catch some of that, dude. I'm so sorry. Is that English? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Ian. What was the first part of that? Uh, I was just uh, I was just uh, I was just sort of like uh, thinking rather naughty, like usual, you know. Uh, <laughs> Did you ever hear the one about the zombie hooker that uh-uh. um, put off her John's uh, didgeridoo <laughs> as a dildo? Well, she didn't no. have to cut it off. I mean, she didn't have to cut it off because with him being so like living dead himself, he, he just dropped off. Oh well, yeah. How oh, embarrassing! I hate when that. Well, they say they say it happens <laughs> to every zombie at some point. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. I, I, I think he was Russian, actually. He was called Andropov. Oh, wow. I don't know how many zombie jokes are going to come out of this. I don't know. But it's a little creepy. That wasn't really really a zombie joke. That was just me admitting off the puff. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, good show, guys. Uh, Really good show. Uh, Great, great, great opening interview. It makes me wonder how you're going to top that. It's going to be tough. We have ways. We're going to do interviews by scening. It's going to be, yeah. Nobody wants to hear that. Are you going to do any interviews, you know, sort of like using sign language? Can you imagine that? That would be interesting. Well, that would be a video one, and I haven't known sign language. I did know sign language as a child, but I've pretty much forgotten almost all of it. Pretty much all I know now to sign is, I'm sorry, I don't know sign language. (laughs) But, you know, the the, the only ones I know is, um, is... Off and the um, and the middle finger thing, you know. Well, that's, that's it's mostly universal. Vagina. In some places, it's the index finger, though, so you got to be careful. 
Mm. And, and there's also that uh, there's also that sit 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 sign you can make with your hand when you're at rock concerts, you know. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. true. Yeah. So yeah, pretty much all I remember how to sign a few things, and I'm sorry I don't know sign language. Just like, uh, but the only thing I remember in Croatian is um neznam Hrvatski," which is "I'm sorry, I don't know Croatian." <laughs> I, I learned that it's very convenient to say um, that you don't know the language when you're going someplace. So, yeah, sure. yeah. Well, you know, um, here in the UK, um, we we kind of learned that years and years ago, because um, basically, so like, you know, over the centuries, we've gone to these different countries conquered these different people and said, yo, you're going to speak English. Yeah. You know, so we, 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 did all, we did all the hard work for you guys, you know. Yeah, it's okay. Well, I, I think actually the French still have a speech. Don't they speak French in more areas of the world than they do English? Don't even mention the <laughs> French. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're too... We're such far distant neighbors. We really don't give a crap. But maybe you could be you could be our um, European zombie correspondent. Keep us updated on on any zombie apocalypse events oh, that are we, happening. We we, um, we had a huge zombie apocalypse this weekend. It was called the, uh, the Royal walk? Diamond Jubilee, where you know <laughs> over 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 a million zombies um, turned up to. Um, Admire and fawn all over the Queen. Have you ever noticed how the Queen, she's looking more and more like Yoda in drag every day. It's unbelievable. <laughs> oh, God love her. Well, you know, she, she's not as young as she used to be. So, you know, you you got to understand, we're Americans. So the whole monarchy thing is just sort of odd to us anyway. So, you know, it's it, it's amusing. It's kind of entertaining from time to time. We don't really get it. <laughs> I, I don't get it either. I, I just saw like, um, I, I avoid, the only thing I watched to do with the Jubilee yesterday was sort of like the uh, big rock concert they had on uh, had on BBC One. And Cheryl Cole turned up, um, you don't think you've heard of her, she's sort of like some wannabe pop star here in the UK that um, did about one episode of X Factor in the States and got blown back. <laughs> Okay, um, now, well, I was going to say, the, the impression we're getting on our, our side of the pond with news is that um, pretty much everything's over there has stopped for this. Is that, I mean, is, is pretty much this all consuming at the moment? I mean, is life going on as normal and y'all are just catching up with it in the evenings? Or is this truly just just pretty much all consuming at the moment? It's been pretty much all consuming on all, all, all the five major channels um i've been so like i you know i've had a great time going through my uh my dvd collection i've called it i've called it movie movie weekend you know <laughs> trying trying to be clever rhyming now, with are, kids, are kids missing school or and people like able to take off work to go do these things or, or is it yeah, pretty yeah. just relegated um, to the media it's been like one big weekend bank holiday uh, for, for for most people, um, except people that work at so like uh, some some of the supermarket stores and twenty four hour garages and stuff like that. Uh, the chemist hasn't been open. Um, you know, so like doctor surgeries are being shut down for it. Other than hey, please case, tell me the pubs are open because that that's civilization. Uh, the pubs have to be open really because <laughs> so like uh, you know. And, and the pubs are actually have, have actually kind of bought into it, but 
What's kind of really funny is where I live. Um, I'm in the northwest of England. I'm in I'm in a very sort of like strong working class area, um, and I've only really seen maybe sort of like uh, two, three houses with bunting up and uh, and union union flags up. I don't call it the Union Jack, yeah. It's only the Union Jack when it's at sea. Yeah, only uneducated, uh-huh. ignorant bastards calling it the Union Jack when it's on land. It's the Union flag on land, the Union Jack at sea, okay? Ah, interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's, that, that's, actually, that's actually true. You can look that up. And, huh. you know. Now, wait a minute. That means uh, in the episode where, where Captain Jack first appeared and Rose was wearing her Union Jack shirt that they were talking about, he referred to it as a saw something about saw a blonde hanging from a uh whatever wearing a union jack. So Cat and Jack got that wrong on Doctor Who. Uh oh. Well, you know, so most people in the UK just call you know, because of lazy and are uneducated from like me, they call it the Union Jack. Yeah. You well say we call it the Union Jack, but we don't we care so much. <laughs> Even that, but it's, it's actually the Union flag when it's on when it's on land, and it's Union Jack when it's at sea. That's that's sort of like the correct way it's, way it is. But our, our true our true flag here in in England is actually the George Cross. Huh. Um, that that that's the flag I I'd have outside my house. Um, <laughs> Ours is easy. It's just always the stars and stripes, no matter what. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was tempted to get a George Cross um, and stick it outside my house um, as an act of rebellion this weekend. <laughs> do you, do you would you get egged? <laughs> I mean, is that is that a phenomenon that occurs in England? Do, do, does your home get egged for things like that? <laughs> Uh, no. Um, no, you, you know, okay, yeah. Um, you People at night can drive by and throw eggs at your house, which is fun to clean off of your door and your window the next day. <laughs> well, you know, we, 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 we don't really get that around, you know, around here. You know, you, you, have to, you have to do something pretty spiteful and pretty horrific in order to get eggs, you know, like maybe crucify somebody's cat or something, you know. Oh, no, I think mostly ours are really bored, unsupervised teenagers. Or zombies. Zombies with eggs. <laughs> zombies uh, with eggs. No. I, I actually got egged once, you know, um, and I didn't do nothing to provoke it. But basically, as a, as, as in my late teens and early 20s, I was actually um, a runner. I did a lot of athletics and track and field, and um, my name was pretty much in the local paper every week. Along with photographs and stuff like that. Oh yeah, and you're asking for it. I remember, I remember running home from um, running home from the shop. Um, I ran to and from the shop because it was mere minutes before it shut. Um, they actually had closing down, closing hours back then. <laughs> and it was like it was like years and years ago. Um, you know, back in the day, huh? <laughs> Joking. Uh, you um, all those young whippersnappers. There was young whippersnappers, you know, there was young whippersnappers, eee, bye, ick. Um, anyway, they, they knocked some eggs at me, and, um, you know, I, I, to, to, to this day, I don't know why. I think it's probably they thought, oh, well, you know, we've seen this, in, we've seen this guy in the newspaper, let's just see how fast he can run. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be if they can hit you. <laughs> <laughs> the best. Oh, cool. 
you know, they, 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 they missed, but only by a fraction. A little bit of air actually ricocheted onto my pants, um, but it didn't actually hit me. It kind of hit the ground, and, and some, some, of the, uh, some of the egg white or yolk actually ricocheted. Um, <laughs> they, they, it wasn't a valid hit. <laughs> I'll tell you. Um, Fem, you've got Victor Miller in the chat room there. Hey, Vic, how you doing? <gasps> Hi, Vic. Oh, hey, Victor's in the chat room. How you doing? Do we have him on the... He's in the chat room there. Oh, Hi. Obviously, Marks is the techie because I'm like chat room. Oh, that means I get to talk to him. Oh no, that would be the the typed word, the written word. The written word. I'm doing good to check email, so. Yeah, I just um, I just got a mail in my inbox from Raisa, and it's about something you guys were talking about earlier. The uh, the the zombies versus gladiators thing. Oh yeah. Oh, I'm, 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 just, I'm just wondering how, how, how could that possibly happen? I mean, surely a zombie, you know, sort of swinging an axe or a broadsword or something, his arm's going to drop off, right? Well, it sort of depends on the zombies. I mean, in recent years, you've had more uh, zombies that are truly not so much the undead, but people who have been afflicted with some sort of disease or a, about some chemical, which would, they wouldn't already be in the immediate throes of rigor mortis and decomposition. So if you think about it, they wouldn't be slow and, and parts of them would have to take some time to be falling off because if they're really only under the influence of something, then they're not actually dead yet. And it's oh, so it's kind of, zombies. He's kind, of like kind of like an old geese taking Viagra and he's <laughs> a zombie, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's different kinds of zombies these days. So I don't know. You'd have to really decide which... Which way they're going with with the whole zombie thing? So I I, I don't know. I find them all creepy. I have a hard time with zombies. <laughs> I only have only been able to watch Shaun of the Dead. I love Shaun of the Dead. I did look away a little bit. Um, really liked Zombieland as well. Um, what else have I been able to tolerate? Oh. I think that's it. I'm a wuss. I'm an absolute weenie. Zombies scare the crap out of me. Yeah, she won't watch Walking Dead. No, no. <laughs> have you Don't seen, laugh at me. Have you seen the finale thought, of Game of Thrones, Ian? Yeah, I thought it was. Um, I thought it was pretty good finale. Um, I'm actually, I'm actually yeah. quite like Game of Thrones. I you know, yeah. I'm, I'm big, I'm big fan of uh, Tyrion Lannister because he's kind of like a creepy, sneaky, devious. Um, you know, he's just, a, he's just a devious little right. guy. I like that guy. I think we got, is that Victor calling in? It could be. I can't remember what his number Hold is. Hold on just a second, Ian. We're going to see. we got someone calling in. I'm not sure who it is. It might be Victor. Hold on just a second. All right. Hold on a second. It Hello? is I. Oh, it Hello. is you. How are you? I am well. We are, <laughs> we are getting ready. We're getting ready to go to the Fox Theater tonight to see uh, young Ian Miller play bass, uh, opening for some act that I couldn't care less about. <laughs> But at least you have someone to root for at the beginning. <laughs> absolutely. That's great. Have yeah, fun. Absolutely. I'm one of the people who's, who's not saying, uh, get those people off so we can get to the good part. Yeah, you're liking the stuff at the beginning. So, um, yeah, so how did you feel about the uh, the show? I'm, I am loving the show, but I was uh, I was busy, as I as I indicated in my other emails, Um and so, so I basically I came in at the point where we were discussing um, 
uh, flag courtesy um, and flag nomenclature for the uh, the British Isles. <laughs> yes, we, we we strive for education in this as well. And then they started. They did start discussing Game of Thrones, which. I oh I never told you what my problem with it was Victor because oh. I would normally Mark's like oh no we only uh, have a few more minutes <laughs> <laughs> ordinarily me- this is the genre I would absolutely love but I've not read the books but at the very beginning they have that Daenerys blonde chick and she gets sold basically they say married but it's basically sexual slavery and her so-called and, and husband. Rape repeatedly rapes, sexually tortures her. And then, according to the story, once she's convinced that she needs to just give in to it and learn to enjoy being sexually tortured, then they fall in love, and theirs is supposed to be the absolute great love story in this whole thing. Personally, and they even, yeah. they even brought him back last Sunday. Yeah, <laughs> they did. And, yeah, and, and in my mind, I cannot possibly understand. So... What you're saying is if all rape victims would just learn to relax about it and enjoy it, they might love the rapist. And I find that, Luke. yeah, I, it's just so awful. It, I can't I can't even imagine the rest of the show has anything worthwhile. It worked for Luke and Laura in the oh, uh, early 80s. Oh, and and right. that, was, that was shameful. It, it was, but you know what's so funny was I was not at the age where I knew that's what had happened until... Many, 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 many years later, after they had been gone from the show and came back. Right. Yeah, and then my mom told me that, and I was like, "Oh, you're kidding." And I, <laughs> yeah. And I haven't and I haven't read Game of Thrones, and I don't want to right now because I don't want to ruin myself for the show. But from what I've heard, is that in the books, before they had had sex, she actually asked for her permission. And and then for some reason on a TV show they decided I guess they yeah, wanted was an evil they, rapist and yeah, they wanted to ratchet up I guess to make the arc yeah. a greater turn and they decided to do that twist which I think was a mistake yeah because the problem is a rapist is incapable of love they're evil so I mean that just ruins the whole premise so you have an entire storyline that was ruined in the entire in the first episode so they just you're, ruined you're, the whole show. You're sounding like you live inside my brain because uh, I was just there was a there was a wonderful review of Game of Thrones in the New Yorker a couple of weeks ago where this exact point was brought up. I think it was either it was either the New Yorker or New York Magazine. I all, that pile gets sort of indistinct after a while, but it was a woman who um, I think the writer was a woman and she was talking about there was at least one actress who walked off the set saying uh uh-uh, uh. Um, I, I'm not going to be treated that way on camera, and um, you know, because they just keep trying, they just keep yeah, trying to undress, they undress yeah. women and, and slap them around and call it um, yeah. television. And my problem, and people, I've gotten this, but you watch Spartacus. I'm like, but on Spartacus, it's treated as a horrible thing. It's it's oh, their slave. That's my, that's my other Spartacus is my other guilty pleasure. That's why I love it. <laughs> But in Spartacus, when they're raped, it's considered a horrible thing, and then you get to watch them suffer and pay for it later. You know, oh it's, it's the idea that it's the idea that oh, rape's okay. You know, if you just put cool music and nice clothes to it. Cynthia <laughs> Di Robinson in the um, in in the last series, uh, she took over as Navia, and boy, didn't she get some revenge at the end. 
I love, I love whenever she's like, you're right, it's not an easy task to take off a man's head with one stroke. <laughs> and he's like, that's okay, I'll teach you. I'm like, that's a love story. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, I'm, just yeah. glad the, I'm just glad the dragons came back. You know, yeah. honestly, I think the dragons sound like the dragons and then Peter Dinklage's character and the little girl might be the only yeah. worthwhile things in the whole thing, but I just can't bring myself to even want to watch it after that. So well, it just th- those are the only things that are keeping me engaged in it is Peter Dinklage's character and um, and also the the little the young girl. Um, you know, she, yeah. she's she's got a great character. The rest of it is kind of sick and twisted. <laughs> <laughs> In yeah, one of the in one of the reviews, they they interviewed Joffrey, or they interviewed that young girl who plays opposite Joffrey, and she said that she fears for him on the bus if he has to travel to <laughs> public because because <laughs> everybody hates him. Yeah, and I've heard he's you know he's a sweet kid, and I I think I, I read that he was excited. Everyone's congratulating him. He got accepted to university. And, you know, he's probably just as sweet as can be, and he's probably getting such evil glares. <laughs> I, I doubt he's sweet. Anyone who can make faces like that and talk that way can't be nice. <laughs> Maybe it's just deep, deep, deep down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, that. so that that was my problem, is it's, it's, if you're going to have that kind of thing in there, it needs to, it would be the same as if you had, you know, a, a man who horribly physically abuses children, but once the child learns to be okay with it, then they can have a happy relationship. You know, that would also be sick and twisted and keep me from watching the show. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. Um, I just, as I said, I I watch for the battle scenes, which they're going yeah. cheap on, and um and the costumes. It's oh my god. And, and the eunuch, I like the eunuch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to be honest, I mean, their their acting and their acting talent is absolutely stellar. And and the art direction and production value is fantastic. And if they hadn't done that, I would probably be a huge fan of the show, but I can't watch it if you know, after that. So you know, I, I probably would have I would probably be the biggest fan if they hadn't had one of the heroes be a rapist. They need to retcon it. The, the, the spirit made him think that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, they should retcon it in the next season. Maybe then I'll go back and watch it. <laughs> well, I, I you know, it. they did kill Drogo at the end of the series. So, but they you know, still acted the like in love. And at best, she had Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, well, it that's, just, that's we, it just weakened her character a bit. Yeah, and I don't, I don't care about her. I think she's a <laughs> pathetic character. Yeah. Well, we only have a few more minutes. So, Ian, do you have a question for Victor? Um, I, I, I can't think of uh, anything off the top of my head, but it's been nice uh, getting a chance to uh, speak to you. And, um, you know, you gave a great interview there. So I'm like a ring enjoyed listening to it. So. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. So these these guys uh, are really fun interviewers. Um, I I came off the, the phone call with them and uh, went downstairs, and my wife said, why are you smiling? And I said, because I enjoyed an interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad. Thank you. And we really did thank enjoy you. Victor was great to come to a film festival here, the May Day Film Festival in Evansville, Indiana. Who'd thought? And um, you know, gave a couple of workshops on writing, and it was it was a, it was a great deal of fun. So yeah, yeah. And I just screened this afternoon. I screened the Linville Incident. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I was, was in that. <laughs> well, see, it was fun. Um, and who were you? I forget. 
I I was the um the woman who was gardening, which oddly enough, oh. and I yeah, I turn into an alien. You know what's really oh, sad? Giving away the story. Oh yeah, what's really sad is I've been an alien, a psychic gypsy fortune teller, and some other stuff. The hardest thing I ever had to do is pretend to know how to garden. <laughs> well, I'm go- I'm gonna sound I'm gonna sound like a horrible brown noser, but uh, I enjoyed your performance best. Oh, thank you. I loved you down. I loved you in the ground trying to defend an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, but my wife yeah. enjoyed the film. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, they did a really good job. Her Royal Highness Yoder in drag is on the television again. I'm sorry? What? Her Royal Highness Yoda in drag is on oh. the television again. <laughs> it took me a second to catch your lingo there. I was like, Yoda, what? Sorry, my brain moved on. Well, that's my name. That's, that's my new name for the Queen. Oh, okay. See, we can't say those things, Ian, because we're not English. So if we ever visit and people know, they might like send their scariest rugby team after us. <laughs> well, I, I'm surprised I've not got police knocking on my door trying trying to condemn me for treason. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll stick up for you best we can. <laughs> well, thank you, Victor, so much for um, calling in too. It's great to hear from you. And thank I you, do, guys. And I, will, I, do I will hang up. And everyone, everyone who's got nothing better to do, go to uh, KowloonWalvCity.com or whatever it is to hear my son play, but not live tonight. How At any rate, thank that? you. Uh, K O W L O O N, and then Walds W A L L E D City. It's the name. It's the name of the group. Why I don't know. But <laughs> there it is. Good well, night, kids. A proud Papa. Have fun. Have fun. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You know, my nephew, um, he had a band called Bollocks of the Beast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's no shortage of names that you never really know the story behind. <laughs> but thanks for calling in, Ian. Well, thanks for calling in, Ian. No problem. We got the countdown here. We are T-minus almost done. So Just about. Yeah, we have to wrap it up real quick here. Yes. But... So thank you. Thank you. I'll talk hey, to you bye. later. Bye. Bye, Ann. All right. So that that's it for our first episode of Genretainment. And we do want to get this in. Before we go, we just want to let you know about our web series called Reality on Demand. You can find it at realityondemandseries.com. And if you want to keep up with web series and other Internet news, you can also check out my column, IndieNet and Beyond, which Julie kindly edits because I kind of suck at grammar. You didn't hear that from me, though. Well, yeah. <laughs> And you can uh, find it at scifipulse.net, scifipulse.net. Uh, I also co-host another uh, blog talk radio show with my friend Ian. She was just here. <laughs> on Mondays called The Big E. And uh, so next week, next week we chat with Ben Bays, executive producer of the popular sci-fi noir web series Aiden 5. He's won quite a few awards and, mm. uh, and been nominated for a whole lot of awards. Yeah, so please join us next week. And we'll be back here at the same time. You have a great day, and uh, thank you for uh, listening to Genre Attainment. Adios.